0: Well, good morning. Uh, So, Ephesians chapter 5 will be where we're going to be um, studying this morning. And we've been doing a theme through the year, uh, doing one sermon each month near the beginning of the month on a section of Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. And we're through the year trying to look at practical applications of what it looks like to learn to walk in wisdom with God. If you um, look at Ephesians chapter 5, In verse 15, this is where the theme of this series comes from, it says, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. At the beginning of the chapter, we're also told to walk in love as Christ loved us, and that really sets a model for where we are this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at verse 22 through 24 specifically and thinking about wisdom for wives. I want to read these verses again and then uh, make some introductory comments before we talk more specifically about um, the instructions in these verses. So Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 22 through 24, and this is going to be the anchoring point for the lesson this morning. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. With these lessons, um, these are, I think, some of the most challenging topics we are going to be looking at in this series of lessons. Marriage and marriage roles and instructions to men and women in these roles just need to be handled with so much humility. And I don't think that can be overstated. Um, I think if we're not careful, you know, as we talk about wives, husbands are kind of looking and giggling at their wives' cross or saying, don't you see how you're supposed to be in this marriage? But then we get to husbands and then the wives are looking at their husbands' cross and doing the same thing. And again, at all costs, we want to have the humility to be self-reflective, to really be reverent and to think very seriously about these things. Husbands should want to equip their wives to apply these things and wives should want to equip their husbands for the applications we'll be seeing in a, in a little bit. But I think it's, it's just so important that we recognize, again, how challenging these instructions are, how challenging it is to understand them and apply them and to see them in the beauty that, um, that is present there. Um, so I want to approach this uh, carefully. Um, obviously, I'm a young man and I'm, I'm not a woman. And so uh, a lot of women, I think, could easily look at me and and, uh, not be very excited to hear from a very young man who's very inexperienced in marriage, how they ought to um, fill their role as a wife. So I just really wanna focus on subjection for the majority of this lesson. And we're really gonna spend the first two points just really trying to clarify the importance and the beauty of subjection in general. And then at the last part of the lesson, uh, I'd like to give just a framework briefly of just some brief, I think, summary applications of ways a wife can fulfill her role. Um, I don't know what that needs to look like in each person's marriage. Um, Like I just said, I'm not experienced enough to to know. Um, But I think the Bible gives us an anchoring point to be able to at least have a framework. We'll be also talking about Um, the the role of wives in our Bible classes in a couple weeks. And so um, I think it would help also to consider this lesson as an introductory to these roles. And men with more experience will be able to teach on it at that time. So I want to start here, that Jesus reveals the glory of submission. Um, If you look back at chapter 5 again, verse 2, after we're told to imitate God as beloved children, we're called to walk in love. And we're given an illustration, an illustration of what that looks like and really what that, what that means. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us, giving himself for us, in an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The word submit and submissive isn't there, but you should see it there. Because for Jesus to offer himself as a sacrifice is really signifying that Jesus lived a life that embodied submission completely. Jesus's life is characterized by submission. And so I really cannot say this strongly enough, that if we're misunderstanding submission, if that's a scary word, or a word that we don't want to think about, or don't want to apply, or just we don't see that as a beautiful thing, Again, I can't say this strongly enough. To misunderstand submission is to misunderstand God himself. If we don't understand the the beauty and the glory and the power of submission, we're not just missing something about an instruction given to a wife in her role. We saw in verse 21 that we're told to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ already. So submission should be something that characterizes a Christian entirely. And it is a quality that with God in all of his power, all of his authority, his dominion, submission is a term that characterizes the nature and glory of God. Maybe to say it just as a summary statement, Jesus is the center of submission. And that's what we're going to see through this. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 17 through 24 again. And I think this helps us give a context here. Um, to really delve more into submission as a concept and as an application. Um, I'm going to read verse 17 through 24, then we'll talk a little bit more about what I've put on the board. Chapter 4, 17 through 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So I just want to point out a couple of things here. For one, we're not equipped to value submission and instructions of submission without a genuine knowledge and love for God. Um, I don't think it's surprising that the world at large does not value submission or that term or biblical roles of a husband and a wife. That's, that's not surprising to me because what's taught here is that to value applications of holiness and righteousness of faith, you have to begin with verse 20, learning Jesus, believing in who he is, having heard him, being taught in him, and truth is in Jesus. And so we're not trying to look at submission in the world's view What we're trying to do is we're trying to let our influence of what this means come entirely from the culture of God's kingdom, from the model of God's character, Jesus' example. And if you look at verse 24, applications, instructions, and commands, what are they? Ultimately, anything that God tells us to do or calls us to do is an extension of his nature, and it makes us more like him. And so, again, if we aren't valuing submission as an instruction, it's not just that one thing that we're not understanding. It's we're missing something much greater and profound. Um, Well, one more thing before before we move on, specifically with marriage. I want to give a strong word of caution. The world may have some helpful marital advice that's out there, But I think we have to be really, really careful that our greatest base of influence with how a wife should fulfill her role, how a husband should fulfill her role, we've got to be really careful to not idealize marriage with like Disney cartoons and Disney movies or romantic novels or advice from people in the world. I'm not denying that there's maybe some wisdom or some practicality in things that might get brought up in the world. But ultimately, these instructions in verse 24 These are things that are holy and of the truth. So we really need to be careful that when we're thinking about a wife and her role, we're studying scripture on the matter, we're letting Jesus influence us in the matter, and that we're being careful to recognize that these are very special things that ultimately are very unique to faith and our love for God. And so we have to just, I think, again, be careful about where we're looking for advice and what we are idealizing in terms of our marriages. I think false expectations do a lot of damage. And inevitably, you'll run into false expectations in marriage. Um, But I think when we start with the ground up with Jesus, we're setting ourselves on the right foundation. So another way of saying some of these things is, without Jesus, the instruction to submit loses all of its value. It loses all of its beauty. It loses its power. It loses its glory. And so I think we need to not just look at submission as an isolated instruction again. We're trying to see these things through the lens of God's character and the work that God has done to redeem us. And so let's go back to chapter one and the prayer in chapter one. We've we've looked at this prayer many times in this series, and I think it's, it's just so important to reinforce this prayer in chapter one. This is something that in Ephesians, like so many letters written to churches, Paul will oftentimes write down a prayer that pretty much summarizes all of the themes that are going to come afterward in the letter. And so I think in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul is praying something that is meant to be a foundation for how we approach these instructions, especially when they're challenging, and again, require wisdom and digestion, meditation, and just thinking on these things and understanding how to apply them. So starting in verse 18, it says, uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, we're going to start a little bit earlier than what I put on the board. We're going to start in verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So really the key thing here is I put on the board The more we admire Jesus, the more we meditate on what he's done, what we've received through his work, the more we understand the heart that Jesus had, his humility, the power of God that was at work in his life and in his death, in his submission to the cross. The more we admire Jesus, the more equipped we are to see submission in its proper context. Um, Another way of saying this, marriage and marriage relationships is really where the rubber meets the road in what we really believe and understand about Christ and the church and the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is extremely challenging. Um, it takes so much hard work to love, the sp- to love your spouse and to understand how to love your spouse, to work through difficulties, to face conflicts with humility. Um, and something I've heard that has been helpful for me is... If we apply God's instructions, if we're humble about these things, God can make our, marriage, our marriages the closest we can ever get to heaven on earth or the closest we can ever get to hell on earth. And so it's just it's critical that we see these things in the right way and that we apply these things by faith. And I think we need to see these things as God does. Um, there's some statements here that I think show us the other side of the story of Jesus' life, right? So it talks about this great power that God uses toward us who believe and he uses a parallel illustration to demonstrate what that power looks like. If you look at verse 19, he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How did that happen? Again, that's the other side of the story. But the method of that power and how Jesus got to the point of even being raised from the dead was submission to the cross and obedience to God's will that led him there. How does God see submission? God sees glory in submission. God sees great power and exercises great power in submission through faith. And if you look at what he says about Jesus here, this is also illustrated in Philippians chapter 2 when it says that Jesus did not account, uh, did not consider God uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And having humbled himself, he became obedient, even obedient to the point of death on the cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him, putting his name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. Again, God works his power through submission, through lowliness of obedience, and there is exaltation in submission. Submission is the method God most clearly uses to work his power for the transforming into his glory. Um, So the more we see submission as God does and understand how how related this is to God's nature and the life of Jesus, the more drawn we'll be into it. Now that's not to say that submission is not challenging and so I think it's important that we look at realities of submission and that it is challenging. I think this is one important reality that we see with Jesus and we see throughout scripture. Submission puts a person in a position of great need and great vulnerability. God knows this. I think this is why the world does not look at submission in a proper context because they don't have a foundation through which those needs and vulnerabilities can be adequately filled and noticed. A husband, no matter how good this husband is, the degree of submission God, God calls us all into, but especially a wife in that relationship, it's simply not possible for the husband to be able to repay the kind of trust that's being invested, to be able to give the comfort for all of the difficulties the heart will experience in that submission. And so we're dependent then in this instruction, not so much to invest the trust of submission into the person, but in God himself. Look at Genesis chapter 16. I think it's a helpful illustration of this. Sarah is regarded as a great woman of faith. She is regarded as an example to wives in 1 Peter 3. Um We're not going to be looking at Sarah's example here, even though Sarah is involved in this story. We're going to be looking at Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. And some interactions here that I think help illustrate this point of not only the challenges of submission, but the blessings and the joy that God works through those challenges. So Genesis chapter 16, um, in the first five verses... Um, In verse 1, Sarai, this is Abraham's wife, and at this point it's Sarai and Abram before God changed their names. God had promised Sarah that through her and Abraham that through him, God would fulfill his promise to bring a nation through them, but they had had no children as of yet. So she took her handmaid, Hagar the Egyptian, and gave her to Abram, and she had a child named Ishmael. And in verse 5, and Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son. You will call his and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction." He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? This is an incredible event. I just, I can't overstate how amazing it is that of all the people we see in Genesis who are very few who have a direct interaction with the angel of the Lord, Here's Hagar, Sarai's maid, running away from Sarai after being treated harshly. And she returns after this interaction with the angel of the Lord. Why? Was she going to invest trust in Sarai? There's no guarantee that Sarai is going to change her treatment of her at all. And if anything, when we see um, Isaac born, she's again treated harshly later. But God still tells her in verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. So how can God command something that seemingly will guarantee grief and difficulty when she returns? It's because through promise, and not just promise of the future, but through the promise of presence. If you look at verse 13, She developed through this a deeper personal conviction understanding of who God is. You are a God who sees. God sees every need that comes through his instructions. And God abundantly supplies every assurance that we need when we face any conflict or struggle as a result of doing his will. I mean, you look at the promise that's made to her here. It's, It's incredible. What God says is, you are going to receive a promise as similar to Abram as I can possibly give you. You are going to have a child, and he is going to become a great nation himself. And later it would say that even there would be kingdoms coming from him. And so God makes promises, and he assures us of his presence to give us everything that we need to be able to be supplied in the vulnerability that comes through his instruction to submit. I want to look at something in the Psalms very similar, Look at Psalm 56. Um, If you know the Psalms, you know that the Psalms are very visceral. Um, They're very gritty. And the very raw emotions that are felt and expressed in the Psalms. And I I would suggest to you that these emotions that are expressed, the grittiness of these emotions, are because of submission. That the psalmists are determined to submit to God's will even when it is costly, when it is difficult when it requires long suffering. And I want you to see in Psalm 56, verse 8 through 13, the progressed similarity between what David here expresses compared to what Hagar also learned in Genesis. Psalm 56, verses 8 through 13. And just for context, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. There were battles that David would fight, There were battles that David could not fight. So often the Psalms are not conflicts that David or other writers are having with Gentile people where they're in some kind of physical conflict where one will lose and die and the other will reign and live and be victorious. But it's conflicts of faith and heart with his own countrymen and his brethren. And as a result of David, who is a ruler and a king, he says, man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. Submission may mean feeling trampled on. And yet, look at verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. And here is one of my favorite images in the Psalms. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise in god i have put my trust i shall not be afraid what can man do to me your vows are binding upon me O god i will render thank offerings to you for you have delivered my soul from death indeed my feet from stumbling so that i may walk before god in the light of the living in verse 12 the psalms say a lot of things that it can be difficult to work out okay what, what are you even saying But in verse 12, when he says, your vows are binding upon me, O God, I think it's important to understand that he's saying, you have given me an instruction. You've made a commitment, and I'm a part of that, and I am determined to submit to that calling. I am determined to to submit myself to whatever is required for that to be accomplished, even if it means man is trampling upon him. But what does this do for the psalmist? What does this do for David? it anchors him more deeply in prayer. It anchors him to find more assurance from God. And look at verse 9 and verse 10. How does he know that God is for him? How does he know that God sees his afflictions? How is he so assured that God is taking careful account of his wanderings, that it's like God is collecting David's tears in a bottle and saving each one and writing down his troubles in a book to keep a record of it all? Verse 10, it's God's word. Submission pushes us to have a more genuine faith. Yes, there, there are challenges in submission. God has called wives into a very challenging role. But the challenges of submission, they push faith. They push us toward prayer. They root us down into a deeper trust and resolve to know God and to cling to him. And God's most incredible and glorious characteristics are most mightily magnified when we approach submission by faith and we suffer for it. And I love verse 12 and 13, the assurance that God will deliver no matter what. God has delivered in the past. God will deliver again and he will be praised and he will walk before God in the light of the living. One last thing with the Psalms, and Genesis. Submission is very unique in that what submission accomplishes, I think, not just for the one submitting, but for the one being submitted to. Submission draws truth out of the heart, and it instills it more deeply uh, inside of it. You think about 1 Peter 3, where it talks about women submitting to their husbands, that even if one is disobedient to the word, they without a word may be won by the chaste, respectful behavior of their wives. Submission is the vehicle by which God saves souls. Because the gentleness of submission contains the power of salvation. There is truth that is brought to the surface of the heart through submission and there is truth that is more deeply rooted into the heart through submission. If we love the truth, then we love submission. Man, woman, it doesn't matter. We should have such a a high and exalted view of all that God is able to accomplish through submission. And David, because of that assurance, determines to press forward. So I just want to finish the lesson practically applying submission. And I hope these applications are helpful. Again, just my lack of experience, I just, this is going to be more of a framework that hopefully can lead to more discussion, more thought, and can be taken and applied further than whatever is is brought up here. But I think in scripture, we have three main aspects of a wife's role. And I think these three things really are a summary of everything that would be involved with submission in the role of a wife. The first is following. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. So I just want to bring up again as we turn there in Matthew chapter 16, Paul brings out that marriage is a one-to-one parallel of the truth of Jesus and his church and the relationship between Jesus and the church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, a wife is told to submit to her husband as to the Lord because... Jesus is the head of the church. So just as the church submits to Jesus, wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. What summarizes the role of the church in relation to Jesus? Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so For better or for worse, a wife needs to let her husband lead. Um, I'm sure there's other husbands here that can relate that leading can be a huge struggle, that there can be failures, catastrophic failures in leadership that can be very disappointing and very disheartening. Despite all of that, though, a wife is instructed to respect the order that God has um, commanded that just as the church doesn't take the role of leadership from Jesus, the church just, it follows. Um, Again, the challenging thing is, us who are husbands in this room, we are not God, nor are we Jesus, nor are we wise like Jesus, kind like Jesus, patient like Jesus, and so therein lies again the struggle, and so I don't want to ignore the difficulty at all of following And I think as we follow Jesus, we realize that as we strive to truly follow Jesus, we truly strive to do his will, we all face struggles in submitting and following Jesus. He will tell us to go where we outright do not want to go. We will be faced with challenges in following Jesus that we could not have anticipated when we first believed. But Jesus is still the head of our lives. And so I would encourage women, strive to let your husband lead. And be careful not to leverage the lead. This, I'm going to try to explain this, but I hope this is clear. There are ways that I think leadership can be leveraged away from the husband. Maybe it's emotions, maybe it's withholding sex, maybe it's uh, just something with um, pushing yourself forward in decisions and taking control of certain things that the husband should be given the, the leadership in just be really careful, again, that it can be easy to leverage lead away from the husband in ways that I think can be subtle, but it's important to understand and notice those things. God has called the husband to be the leader in the relationship. And again, that can be challenging. There can be many disappointments that require renewed mercy, renewed hope in the Lord, and prayer, but we just have to anchor ourselves down that that's what God has called the relationship to be and look like. And so... Let the husband lead. Be careful not to re- leverage the lead away from him in subtle ways that can be easy to overlook. Uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I think the second component that summarizes the wife's role is helping. If you look back at Genesis chapter 2, um, in the very beginning, in verse 18, uh, when God is considering creating woman. Um, this is what he calls Adam's wife Eve. So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so, with helping, I think it's again important. Well, what does that mean? What is that in practicality? What does that look like? Um, and I think, in summary terms, it's to support, it's to give intimacy, it's to encourage, it's to help with needs and difficulties. And I think this is what you see in Proverbs 31, if you want to turn there. Um, I think with these roles, it's important that we don't have ideals that, again, can seem like they are reflecting Scripture but really fall short in some critical ways. What I mean is, we're not in helping, talking about a 1950s magazine cover housewife, okay? Um, And I don't think that's what you see in Proverbs 31. And so when we're talking about a wife submitting to her husband, we're not talking about trying to restore what things looked like in households 50, 60 years ago. That's not what we're talking about at all. Again, we're talking about building our influence from what what scripture says, what it teaches, and examples that are given. Proverbs 31, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of his life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships and brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is a strong woman. And this, again, um, I know it may sound silly, but this is not the image, again, of just a 1950s magazine cover housewife. And the interesting thing about everything stated from verse 10, with how busy she is, with how much initiative she takes, all these different things that she's doing, there is nothing here that fundamentally in any way betrays any instruction given to women. This is a woman that is honoring her husband. This is the, this is an ideal of a woman who is submissive, who is kind, who is supportive, who is encouraging, who is honoring her husband, whose husband loves her and is supported by her. And so in Genesis 2 verse 18, we just have to think again, what does it look like for you in your marriage to be a helpmeet, to be helping supporting and encouraging and again I just need to keep saying this that this this doesn't at all diminish the challenge of figuring things out and just the confidence that I have that every wife in here is, is trying to do these things and so there can be so much insecurity of wanting to do better not understanding how and I think we just need to be patient and humble And just know that God is going to help us work out these applications where there is a willingness. So serve and anticipate needs that may exist in marriage and try to to bear burdens as best you can and depend on the Lord as we just, we struggle to make applications but are trying to do the right thing. A verse that is ahead of um, where we are in Ephesians 5, the very last verse of, of chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. Um, I think the the third summary quality of a wife's role is honoring, um, respecting who your husband is. Um, If you look at the very end of verse 33, as Paul is talking about marriage and the role of husbands, he says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I think some simple things, again, I know there, there's, there's so much more to be understood about what this looks like. But learn how to value and work with the strengths and the weaknesses that your husband has. Um, every man is going to be very different and lead his marriage in maybe very different ways. Personalities will be different. You may have a husband who is just a type A personality, like you remember Cody LaChapelle, just type A personality, get it done, doing a million things a day. Then you have another husband who's just not like that at all, maybe the opposite, right? And so understand where your husband is, respect the struggles that he has, look at the needs that he has, and strive to value and to notice the strengths that are in your husband's character, the strengths that God has given him. Strive to help those strengths flourish. And be careful and be aware of insecurities and weaknesses that exist in his life as well. Um, one, One... I think very important application woven through all of this with valuing strengths and weaknesses is I think this is true for a husband and a wife that we need to be striving to be profusely thankful for our spouses. Um, We were at Victoria and Paul Kelsey's house, I promise this is a good thing that I'm using for an illustration, but uh, we were at Paul and Victoria's house a few months ago and Paul led the prayer before the food. And I remember it just encouraged me and moved me so much. Paul spent so much time in that prayer thanking God for Victoria. It just saying amazing things. And I thought that was such a good example. We need to be profusely thankful for our spouses. But we need diligent mercy. Um, diligent mercy and patience I think are the foundation of a thriving marriage Um, before I married Eva you know I knew that marriage would be challenging but I have been shocked and surprised at how catastrophically I have failed Eva in our marriage how often I have failed my role in our marriage and how much I have hurt Eva through those failures And I have just seen mercy so much more clearly through the patience that she's shown me. And it's just helped me understand so much that just as mercy is the basis of our relationship with God, there just cannot be a working relationship between a husband and a wife without diligent patience, diligent mercy. It's just so desperately needed. And we have to be striving to protect our hearts from bitterness. Um, The reality again is disappointments will come and uh, husbands will disappoint their wives. They will, they will fail. They will fail catastrophically. And so to respect your husband, it is, it is challenging but necessary to just be aware of the temptation to let disappointment fester into bitterness and to let bitterness become a part of your marriage and your view of your husband. Only in God is it possible to have the freedom to extend mercy the way that it's extended to us first in Christ. And so I, w- I would encourage you that more than anything, the, the need for mercy is so great. And I think fundamentally all of these other applications or anything more specific that's needed in your marriage is only an extension of the foundation of mercy and patience and love that is the ground we stand on for our faith in God. And so the lesson is yours. Um, I hope I hope that these things have been helpful, encouraging, convicting, and can be taken and applied with with wisdom and humility. Um, If you would uh, pray with me for just a moment about these things, and we'll stand and sing our invitation song if there's any need to be brought forward. Let's pray. Father, please help us to have humble attitudes, help our marriages, God, to be thriving examples of Christ and the church. Please bless these words to be taken, to be heard, to be... Instill deeply into the heart. Make us more like you. Help us to be patient with each other, God. Help us to know your love and to practice it in the most difficult but rewarding ways. You are such a worthy God, so amazing. You put us in awe. Your ways are ways that are beyond our comprehension, the wisdom contained in your instructions and the purpose. You are a powerful God and a merciful God, a great Father, Please help these things, Father, to be thriving in each of our lives, that we would all strive to live honoring the submissiveness of your own son and how much we've received through that method of accomplishing salvation. In your son's name, amen. If there's any need that's um, relevant at this time to your relationship with God, please bring it forward we stand and sing an invitation song.